Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. He said Britain is just a small island that no one pays attention to. A former colony won the right to determine its own destiny. If you're listening to this podcast, you're most probably listening through a pair of headphones, which means I have the perfect sponsor with the perfect product for you. It's Studio, and they want to revolutionize the way people see headphones. Generally, fashionable headphones tend to lack the proper sound quality and the high-tech ones are bulky and not design-orientated. Studio bridge that gap while emphasizing sleek, modern Scandinavian design. To get a 15% discount on any of their wares, go to studiosweden.com which is spelled s-u-d-i-o sweden.com and simply put in the code d-t-d when purchasing a pair of headphones hello and welcome to mid-atlantic the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the atlantic from the perspective of the other i'm royfield brown in california specifically in san francisco today i'm joined by tim marshall in london the editor of the what and the why.com to do our monthly look at world politics away from the special relationships hello tim how are you mate greetings never better thank you for asking good good the u.s ambassador to panama is resigning following the president's alleged vulgar comments. Now, the president is uh, saying he didn't quite use those tough words. However, Senator Durbin said today, yes, Mr. President, you did say them. Joining us now is Ari Fleischer, former White House press secretary. How do you think Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the current White House press secretary, should handle this? It's going to be a brutal briefing today, Stuart. Today is one of those days where if you're a White House press secretary for Donald Trump, you need to toe the line. You need to justify what the boss did, why he did it, because that's who Donald Trump is. He likes these controversies to be about himself and he thinks it's productive. I think every single reporter in that room is going to think that this was destructive and it's hurtful of America's image in the world. So you're going to have a clash in that briefing room. Five days after the President of the United States called African countries, Haiti and El Salvador shithole countries, we ask, has Trump's presidency shifted or projected US power and influence since his inauguration in 2017? Tim, over to you, mate. Well, I don't think he's done himself or the United States 
uh, any favours. Uh, there is no excusing it if he did use that language, because it is not presidential language. It is, however, the sort of language a lot of people use. Some people would even say, yeah, I come from a uh, shithole country or whatever. But that's a different thing. It's not for the President of the United States to say it. Now, look, there is some debate about whether he did. There were about eight people in the room, including himself, two senators, uh, two uh, congressmen, one Democrat, one Republican say he did. Uh, three, I think, say he didn't or they didn't hear it, and a couple just haven't spoken. However, it would not be surprising in the least if he had, because it would be entirely in keeping with his character, uh, the language he uses, the attitude that he appears to have, certainly to minority groups, and he's got a track record as long as your arm. And so I think, it, I think on balance, he probably did say it, and it is entirely unpresidential, it detracts from America's standing in the world. Uh, it, it weakens America via soft power. It insults allies and it just insults people. And it's the sort of entirely unnecessary uh, row that he, he's got himself into. So the comment shithole countries, I'm presuming that um, this might play differently in different sections of the world. So Explain what the African Union, uh, the African Union's position, the stance with him calling all 52 countries of the African continent shithole countries. What do well, they I don't think do? He did. Um, even if he did use that phrase, he mm -hmm. wasn't saying that every single member of the African Union is. But, you know, he was clearly referring to developing countries. And it, it doesn't everyone a disservice to, to refer to them like that. The African Union is all bound. It, it, one of its many roles is to defend the dignity of the organization and the countries which make up it, in other words, Africa. And so they're honor-bound to, to protest about it, as is the uh, government of Haiti, as is the government of El Salvador, etc., etc. You know, they have to. They have to call it out for what it is. Uh, and that's not the meaning of the story. The meaning of the story, to me, is twofold. Mm -hmm. Firstly, internally, inside America, what does it say to people uh, of colour, whether it's Latin America or Africa, uh, that where many of their ancestors came from, or even themselves, uh, are referred to in that manner? For the rest of the country, they see that the man in charge doesn't even understand what it is to be an American. What it is to be American is to leave these places, come to America uh, to better yourself. And his own ancestors came, the, you know, white people's ancestors came from places which were not very nice. And this place is supposed to give them a refuge. And then the leader of it turns around and uses that sort of language. And I think it's it it's undermines America's own moral statue internally. And it does exactly the same externally, where, again, this you know, city on the on the on the hill, this shining light, as it's supposed to be, uh, is suddenly tarnished if the man at the top says that. And I think underlying the whole thing, Royfield, and this is unprovable, but I think it makes sense. I think Trump is someone who does hanker after an old America of the 1960s, where America was regarded as a white country. And he is of that age and generation, and I suspect temperament, that can't really get over how much things have changed. And so when, when that sort of remark comes out of his mouth, I think there's something of that in it. Just as the concept of a wall to keep them out, to protect us, 
I think is mostly based on the on, a, on an outdated idea of what people like him think America is. Mm. All right. Let's move away uh, specifically from the comments of last week. Um, what will be America's biggest geopolitical concerns in 2018? Oh, without question, North Korea. Um, I mean, Iran as well and the rest of the world, because you know they are everywhere. But North Korea have played things brilliantly for years and years and years and have got themselves to five minutes to midnight, midnight being them getting a nuclear weapon or there being a war. Or the compromise deal, but they're you know we're pretty close to whatever it's going to be. And again, they've played a good card, knowing that American heat's about to come down on them in the spring. They've said, "Oh, why don't we talk to South Korea? Why don't we send a delegation to the Winter Games?" They've just bought themselves some more time. Get the Winter Games out of the way because you can hardly have a war during the Winter Games, can you? And at mm-hmm. that point, American pressure is going to absolutely pile upon North Korea, and. Most analysts think that the stakes are too high for there to be a war. Countering that is that if you don't have a war and they get a nuclear weapon, A, potentially endangers the United States, but equally importantly allows North Korea to dominate South Korea, at which point they tell eventually the South Koreans to get rid of the American troops. So are those stakes too high? So that's the biggest foreign policy challenge, how you handle that. Uh, Then you have the Iranian nuclear deal, which Mr. Trump looks like he wants to dismantle, and there's a rearguard action being fought by the Europeans. Tim, Tim let, 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 let's just back up on, on North Korea. Oops, sorry, yeah. Um, can, it appears to, let's say, not too seasoned watchers of the Korean Peninsula and America's attitude towards it, that Trump's Trump's pronouncements are somewhat kind of erratic and, and bellicose and volatile. Are you saying that... They might be those things, but there is actually hard and fast uh, strategic sense. Oh, um, yes. But I don't believe he uh, is a complete fool. <laughs> I think you can even make a strong argument that he has scared the North Koreans to the extent that they know they've got to buy some time. I think without his belligerence, uh, this may never have happened. I think it's perfectly reasonable to make an argument that the Obama years got absolutely... Well, it's clear. The Obama years, the Bush years, the Clinton years got absolutely nowhere. He says he's going to deal with it. And I think 2018 is the year where we will see one way or the other. I think his belligerence has also really concentrated minds in China uh, and in Russia. And I think they've really concentrated minds that people realize that he may mean it. And consequently, people like Beijing and Moscow are trying to put what pressure they have on Pyongyang in North Korea. And you can make a strong argument that um, that's pretty good statesmanship. Now, the fact that he does it in his manner, I think, blinds people to that possibility. I'll give you an example. If President Obama says, all options are on the table, and Mr. Trump says, I've got a big red button and it's bigger than his. You take the first one seriously and you laugh at the second one. Whereas in fact, it's the same statement. Obama saying all options are on the table is saying in code, we will nuke you and attack you if necessary. But he says it in a much more classy way. Uh, But that doesn't mean you should just simply laugh and dismiss and throw your hands up in the air when Trump talks about a big red button. 
But we need America to have that reputation for steadfastness, steadiness, reliability, don't we? And 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 you, and that's what we think about the state. Well, ha- hang on, Royfield. Um, you go all the way back to uh, the nineteen seventies. Mm-hmm. Nixon sent Kissinger over to uh, what was then Peking, Beijing, to tell Mao, "Oh my God, I've got this crazy guy in the White House called Richard Nixon. He actually wants to attack you. You know, I'm trying to control him." You need to do a deal. It's the madman theory. He's not the first American president to play a uh, tough guy, uh, and he, he's not going to be the last. He is the most uh, unsavory, and his command of the English language perhaps is not all it could be. But, you know, th- this is not that new. So you're, so basically what you're telling me here, Tim, is that the State Department is in lockstep with Trump this is um, a very well choreographed dance, and the State Department is not only coping with Trumpism, but uh, Trumpism is its key kind of foreign policy strategy. Looking at the Korean uh, Peninsula, it's the Madman theory dressed up in the clothes of Donald Trump. Um, the second part of what you said, yes, I don't think they're in lockstep. The State Department certainly isn't, but I think that the highest echelons of the State Department, meaning Tillerson and his team. Yes. Okay, let's go on to Rex Tillerson. Um, grade him um, from from A to E. Uh, a being excellent, E being he, he's failed his GCSEs. Um, how do you think he's done in his first year as a uh, as foreign secretary? It depends, it depends Sorry, on your starting the State point. Well, I feel it uh, depends on where you start from. If you think it's a good idea to cut an awful lot of red tape uh, in the mm-hmm. State Department, if you think it's a good idea to get rid of what you regard as dead wood, um, then I'm going to give him a B. If you think he's hollowing out the State Department um, and, and reducing American influence and power in, in the world uh, and, and his cost-cutting is not good, then he's going to have a D. So, okay, um, for once I'll get off the fence. D. <laughs> and in particular, where are we seeing... Um this lack of, let's say, independent uh, foreign uh, foreign leadership from, from Tillerson, in which sphere is this going to most most evident that we've had this hollowing out of the State mm-hmm. Department and also that we have um, somebody who's supposed to be in charge of America's foreign policy that seemingly cannot make uh, American foreign, foreign policy without um, erratic tweets from his president? Well, you know, most American foreign policy has been made by the man at the top. I mean, I think Mrs. Clinton came pretty close to having, you know, being allowed to pry her own furrow. Maybe Condi Rice did, but, you know, everybody is dependent upon the president. Um, but, but two things on your question. In, in the longer term, that's when we're going to know. We don't know how damaging this is to the United States, that there are no, you know, half the countries around the world or something don't have ambassadors, that some senior foreign policy experts in all sorts of uh, regions of the world have, have resigned either on principle or because their jobs have been made untenable. Now, down the line, we're going to find out whether that great American machine uh, is going to creak uh, through through lack of oil and and uh, mechanics, so but I think it is too early to tell that. I'll give you an example of where I think American foreign policy is falling down, and it's Turkey. Uh, the drift between Turkey and NATO 
ally and the United States is really quite alarming. And there doesn't seem to be any great policy by the United States to try to bring Turkey back towards the United States. Um, for, you know, I can actually see Turkey falling out of NATO within, within five years. Okay, we're going to uh, come back on to Erdogan later when we talk about Maduro and, and Venezuela and their kind of parallels. But let's go back to the, the administration's national security speech in December. Trump said, we face rival powers, Russia and China, that seek to challenge American influence, values and wealth. We will attempt to build great partnerships with those countries and others, but in a manner that always protects our national interest. What form could this partnership take? Let's first deal with Russia, considering um, the Americans, at least the Trump administration, is mired in Russian collusion to do with the American um, election. So let's Allegedly. deal with Russia first. Allegedly. I, uh, I haven't seen a shred of evidence that... Um, okay, let's say, let's say there's no collusion, but we know that the Russian, uh, the Russian foreign security apparatus definitely tried to influence and meddle in the American election. That is beyond doubt. So let, let's deal with any um, proposed American-Russia cooperation. What shape could that take? Uh, well, it would only be um, economic and then coming to one or two agreements in, in two key places. One would be Syria, mm-hmm. where basically the Americans have taken a back seat and said, OK, you know, get on with it. Um, but they do need to cooperate on Syria, as they do with Turkey on Syria, um, especially on a coming clash, which is that the force that the Americans are going to train up, 30,000 strong, to patrol the border uh, between Turkey and uh, Syria, is essentially regarded as Turkey as an anti-Turkish force. And that's going to cause an awful lot of problems. And the America needs... Russia, because they're a big player in Syria, and Russia's always known these days would come. So that, 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 that's one area. The other one is Ukraine, mm-hmm. where they can do one of two things. They can freeze it, which is what is happening at the moment, or they can heat it up. Um, the Americans are now thinking about sending um, anti-tank missiles, the Javelin, to the Ukrainian military forces, which would be a serious blow to the Russian forces that occupy parts of Ukraine. So, I, I, you know, there's another area where they can cooperate, but I don't think they're going to. Economically, I don't think they're going to. And I think on the cyber warfare front, there's going to be more problems. If you turn to China, I think they've got more chance of having a decent, stable, based on trade relationship with China than they do with Russia. Talking about trade, uh, the president withdrew from the Trans-Pacific Partnership um, which was, let's say, a major course correction in terms of economic policy. Um, what next, if we if we did and we trade, um, is NAFTA next for the chop, Tim? No, I don't think NAFTA's next for the chop. It's, it's being renegotiated. Um, Mexico and Canada want to stay in it. Um, even if Mr. Trump doesn't, he'll certainly be told so by, let's say, California and Texas, where, what is it, up to 300,000 jobs depend on NAFTA. Uh, they're not leaving NAFTA. Um, as for uh, the other trade agreements, did you notice? Uh, has the world ended? Did uh, Has he uh, caused a nuclear war? Has he entered Not into yet. a massive trade war with the Chinese over steel? None of these things have happened. Apparently the world was going to end 
I mean, it's a year this, this weekend, isn't it? A year ago, apparently the world was about to end. It hasn't. You've got to get past all, all his, uh, his, his bluster. Uh, he is just another American president. Uh, America has interests and it goes about its business around the world. Can we seriously say he's just another? No, American okay, he's another favorite. president that will go down in history as being the most unpleasant, foul-mouthed, uh, belligerent uh, president that they've they've ever had. But his policies, I don't think, are that. There's not this massive break in policy. But that's what explicitly. That's what he said on the campaign trail, he said there would be a massive break. He said, we are not going to do things the way that we've done things before. Well, you didn't believe it, did you? I mean, do, we, do you believe what, what, what presidential candidates tell you of, of whatever flavour they are? Uh, I don't. They say what it takes to get elected, and he's done that. And then the realities of power kick in. Look, I'll tell you one or two, I mean, we're talking detail. One or two things will happen this year. Uh, yes, Go. NAFTA is going to have to be renegotiated, but also intellectual property is going to be a huge row between China and the United States, uh, as is, I think, the steel dumping. But I don't think that that leads to this massive trade war that then ushers in um, the the end of globalization and a worldwide recession. In fact, many parts of the world are recovering. The United States unemployment is lower than it's been for a very long time. And the United States stock exchange is higher than it's been, all on, on his watch. I'm not saying he's responsible for that necessarily. But, you know, the world hasn't come to an end. Do you believe having this type of president in power, he'll be able to beat a steady ship in a true hot crisis. No. Uh, you know, you, you don't... And I'm sure you don't, Royfield. I mean, you just wind me up and let me go. I, I know that. Um, <laughs> don't mistake my... What I hope is a rather sanguine view of him with liking him or supporting him or trusting him. Th- those are very different things. Um None of those things, I think, I, I feel about him. But um, I just haven't seen uh, a massive world crisis erupt because that man's in the White House, uh, whether it's trade or, or, or warfare. You know, give me any year in the past, since the 1945, when an American president hasn't ordered people to be killed in other parts of the world. You, you know, America, America is, the, is the world's superpower. My problem with Trump more than anything is that because I actually do admire America for all its faults, and I do see it has a role as a world policeman, um, that his tendency to isolationism is going to get America into trouble because that always happens. They always get drawn in. When they draw their horns in, they, they always get drawn back in. And I just think that America's moral stature in the world has been diminished, and that's a negative thing for me. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. 
What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. President Trump has warned Venezuela's leader, Nicolas Maduro, that he holds him personally responsible for the safety of two top opposition politicians who are being held in a military prison. One of them is Antonio Ledezma. He was uh, dragged from his home by secret intelligence agents in the early hours of Tuesday morning in Caracas. His daughter has been speaking to our South America correspondent, Katie Watson, who asked what life has been like for her father, who's been under house arrest since 2015. He can uh, talk, and uh, no videos, no interviews, don't talk to phone for more than two years. In the last days, he told to, to, the, to his family and, and he saw, I can't stay uh, quiet when I saw this murder, more than a 120 by a policeman in the street. I can't stay quiet and silence with um, almost 500 political prisoners right now. Leaving the semblance of democracy in place, is Venezuela's Maduro a democratic authoritarian in the mould of Turkey's Erdogan, who uses a referendum to expand the powers of his presidency, imprisons political prisoners, he attacks the judiciary and, and has restricted the freedom of the press? Tim, what is going on in Caracas? It's a democratic dictatorship or a dictatorial democracy in that it retains the semblance of a democracy and they hide behind various laws and part of the constitution, whereas in fact uh, it is a one-party state now. And Maduro inherited it from Chavez. It would be okay if they hadn't ruined the economy with their ridiculous ideas about how the world should be organised. Um, so and it's come home to roost, their, their, their utter idiocy. And so what you have now is the elected parliament has been uh, closed down. So there's a law being passed to prevent that if you, vo- if you, if you boycotted the mayoral, the recent mayoral elections, uh, well, if you boycott that, that means you can't stand in next year's elections, which, you know, it's just a clear way of making sure that anybody with any uh, oomph in the country cannot stand against Maduro. You now have a situation where when people come onto the streets to demonstrate, he unleashes his motorcycle thugs to beat them up and sometimes to kill them. Torture is rife. Uh, People are increasingly being hungry. Tens of thousands are fleeing the country. Uh, The economy has collapsed. It's just approaching hyperinflation. And the apologists for this awful situation Uh, say, oh, it's some sort of weird American conspiracy against the great Bolivarian revolution. No, it's not. It's that these idiots have run the place into the floor and then tried to cover it up with their rhetoric whilst absolutely beating the people left, right and centre. They can't even put painkillers into the the pharmacies. 
isn't this really just the case of the oil price went down in 2014 mm. after a year after Chavez died? The government broke relatively. The IMF says that oil prices are going to spike again in 2018. Everything will be all right back in Caracas. Yeah, but the, the oil price went down in Norway as well. And I don't see tens of thousands of people fleeing across the border in, 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 into Sweden. Um, the, the oil price was peaking uh, in the 90s all the way up to about 2008. And it was $100 a barrel. And mm-hmm. yeah, Chavez put some of that money back in and he did improve the infrastructure. But he didn't improve the infrastructure or diversify the economy. And and if you go all the way back to 2003, the workforce in um, the state-run oil, well, it's oil, all state-run, everything's more or less state-run, they went on strike. And so in, in a grand socialist tradition, uh, Chavez fired nearly everybody, all the workers. And the oil company never really recovered from that. And it was never modernised. There was no productivity. Um, So all he did was just allow this rather creaking infrastructure in the oil business to keep going while it was $100 a barrel. And suldenly when it drops down to 30, they've got nothing to fall back on, absolutely nothing. And again, they do ridiculous policies such as uh, collective farms. They have these policies where you have price controls, at which point all the farmers said, well, hang on, you're paying me peanuts. I'm not going to bother uh, producing any food because I mean, this is exactly what happened uh, in Russia in the 30s and Ukraine under communism when, when there was mass starvation. The, the farmers stopped growing. Nothing went to market. And Venezuela, th- which has the largest oil reserves in the world, has to resort to importing massive amounts of food from countries who are prepared to bail them out, such as Cuba and Russia, simply for foreign policy reasons, uh, whilst pretending to be to be decent countries. I mean, the whole thing's a nonsense. And they've got all these apologists. We, we have one in our country called Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the opposition, who thinks that Chavez and Maduro are heroes. You've got many of them in the States. Uh, Mark Weisbrot. Go and have a look at your economist, very famous economist, Mark Weisbrot. These are apologists for people that have absolutely hammered the workers. And they, they, because they can't bring themselves to admit it, they have to blame the big imperial Yankee as if it's some sort of plot to do them down. Have a look at Chile next door. They're doing a lot better. But wasn't it um, Morgan Stanley um, that have massively underwritten Venezuelan government bonds? So it, it's not just um, left of centre political thinkers um, that are at least propping up or giving succor to the Caracas regime, is it? It's also Western institutions. Yeah, well, they've got some skin in the game, meaning dollars. And if it collapses, they're going to lose their dollars. And people have been trying to prop it up. And there is a moral issue as well that, you know, people are going hungry and they are dying. Um, But the, the way ahead is not Maduro's way ahead, which is to ban the opposition, which is to close down dialogue, which is to smash the workers off the street. You know, this is not the way ahead, but that's the way they're going. The best thing they could do would be to hold an open and free election, apply for all sorts of loans, uh, not be belligerent towards large parts of the outside world, and and try to 
somehow turn it around over the next few years, but they're going in the other direction. Just quickly, uh, Tim, please explain to me the Maduro coalition, because Chavez was um, a general, wasn't he? He was um, high high up in the military. Um, So what are the constituent elements that we should keep Maduro in power right now? Uh, Well, it's the military, um, first and foremost. And the military, um, like in all these places, like Iran, have got their tentacles deep into big business because they make a fortune um, out of the corruption and the oil sales. And, of course, the oil companies um, also are are deep into this because most of them are doing okay. It's just sort of 99% of people that aren't. So you have the military, you have the Socialist Party, you have one or two hangers-on of the Socialist Party, and together you make up enough that they have got a majority. They were elected, I don't doubt that, but they were elected in extraordinarily dubious circumstances. Um, I mean, for example, you're probably aware of Freedom House. Freedom House measure how Mm. free countries are. And uh, during Chavez's term, which was... 15 years, they they went to, Venezuela was considered an averagely freedom, free, free-ish country. They are now considered one of the most repressive countries in the world. So the constituency is simply those that know if he goes down, we're going down with him. Well, on that um, somewhat pessimistic note for the uh, immediate future of uh, Maduro in Caracas, I think it's time for our take of the week, Tim. Oh, uh, there are so many to choose from. Um, well, listen, I'll, I'll tell you what, whilst you're thinking, right, uh, why don't you cue me up so I can wax lyrical about Cyril Regis? <laughs> <laughs> Your American listeners might wonder who Cyril Regis was. Um, it's a very sad well, story, but it's also a very inspiring story. Um, Cyril Regis was a, a black Briton who played football for a team called West Bromwich Albion, uh, which are in the Midlands in the UK, um, in Birmingham. And I remember him as, as well, I wasn't a kid, I was, I was an adult by the time he was um, in his prime. And the thing about Regis was that he was in a team where there were three black players, and we weren't used to that in this country at the time. I mean, we'd had players like um, Clyde Best Clyde at West Best. Ham. yeah. Uh, Albert Johansson at Leeds in the 60s. But we, suddenly there was this t- team where they had three black players and they were known as the Three Degrees because that was a f- famous American pop group at the time. And they, they, they suffered the most horrendous racial abuse whenever they ran out on a Saturday afternoon to play football. Really, really terrible stuff. But it was a sea change. And Regis was this magnificent man, um, quite humble, fun to be around uh, who never reacted to all this racial abuse except by scoring goal after goal after goal because his dad dad had told him, you want to keep them quiet score goals and he was this icon Um, I mean people say he was an icon for young black Britain and and he was, in some ways he was an icon for young white Britain because you know, white Britain saw he was this incredibly dignified, powerful, skillful guy. Played for England five times. And he was part of the sea change that opened the way for young black Britain to think, you know, I can make it. There is a way through. And he opened a lot of white people's 
eyes that this was the this was the the late 70s now going into the 80s that this was young modern Britain and most young black Brits uh, well people my own age actually not young but most black Brits that were young then they know him even if they didn't like football they know the name Cyril Regis and I've been trying to think of a an American equivalent um, possibly um, uh, Jesse, uh, Jackie Robinson because uh, yeah. he broke through into Absolutely. baseball and changed yeah. baseball, and I think you could, you could vaguely say, I think he will go down in, in British history in the sporting sense and the social sense a little bit like mm. Jackie Robinson is in the American sense. I think that's uh, yeah the best analogy. It, it's not quite a perfect one, no. um, but. The other thing to say about the three degrees, so there was Cyril Regis, Brendan Batson and Laurie Cunningham, and was that um, that this was approximately, let's say, it was about 1978. So we're talking about a generation after mass non-white immigration into Britain. Yes. And so it was in, so they were an important cultural marker to say that uh, these people are now British here they are just playing playing football and as you rightly said it there had been the odd isolated case of a footballer but to have three in one team was just unbelievable yeah. uh, but it, it also coincided with the time of a British scar as well so for me being what about 10 at the time 10 in 1978 11 they were a powerful symbol of the fact that actually I was like them they were like me uh, but we were but but we were British you know at the time you had things like uh, Love Thy Neighbour which uh, it was a soap opera on British TV which would not at all fly now um, in terms of its overt racism and stereotyping of people who were non-white and then you had this shining example of confident skillful powerful uh, British people that just happened to not be uh, not be white, and um, he was a total hero of mine. And to hear that he died yesterday at the age of only fifty nine, you know, was an absolute shock. Um, there is a great documentary which Adrian Charles did called Whites versus Blacks, which was a testimonial match. Which is another thing which not wouldn't happen now. A testimonial match for an Albion player, Len Cantello, who'd been at Albion for ten years. You can watch it on YouTube where what they decided to do, because West Bromwich Albion, as, as Tim said, had these three black players, they decided to have this testimonial match for this player, and they had uh, they dredged up um, every black uh, professional footballer they could, and they couldn't quite do 11, so there were some kind of reserve players and youth team players at the whole professional league. And there's young Garth Crooks there, there's Hazel from Wolverhampton Wanderers. Ryfield, Ryfield, no one knows what you're talking yes. about, they're all American. Forty <laughs> percent of our okay. listeners are American, but this is this is what. But they need an education, Tim. They need an education. Go and, and watch this, and 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 actually, as I said, it's a really powerful marker as to how times have changed. That we're going to have a, a game of white professionals versus black professionals. Funnily enough, the white professionals who played in that game could not remember the result. All the black professionals did, and they were very and they were very clear. 
uh, as to the kind of the importance of the game. Uh, but yeah, it was just such a marker in time. Cyril Regis, um, long may he rest in peace. Yeah. Um, a great yeah. symbol of post-war Britain. Uh, I, I agree. I'll give you two, two quick things. Um, again, for American listeners to, to try to get a handle on, on it, there was this notion around in the 70s that, yeah, yeah, you know, there's some skillful black players, but you know what? They don't like it when it's cold. And really, people genuinely believed that black players couldn't, <laughs> couldn't play in, in the cold. And then Regis would come along on a freezing cold January Saturday afternoon with a sleep belting down and he would just blast his way through everybody and smack in a goal in the 89th minute and you know you kind of anyone that did think that thought hmm maybe not the other thing Rifle is that I once played cricket for France but that's another story what? I'm sorry I'm leaving it there <laughs> no you're not what do you, what do you mean you once played cricket for France? ask me another time I was living in Paris um, I'm English they were a man short I play cricket for France against Italy. I'm not telling you anymore. <laughs> All right, then we'll have to come back in two weeks and you're going to have to finish that story. Um, right, that, this has been uh, our first Mid-Atlantic with the, the what and the why as editor uh, Tim Marshall, where we've looked at America's foreign policy options in 2018 and also looked at what's going on in Caracas under Maduro. Um, you can follow us on Twitter, where we are midatlanticshow.com also you can find us on Facebook by doing exactly the same thing follow me on Twitter where I'm at Royfield uh, Tim how can people catch up with you on the social medias oh thank you uh, on Twitter I am itwittius um, the what and the why dot com is the international news website um books are out but they're advertised on my website and my new book uh, actually my one of my books is coming out in america about flags in paperback very soon uh, worth uh, a flag worth dying for and um i've got a new book coming out in the uk called divided in uh, march fantastic tim we'll see you in a couple of weeks and you can catch up with another mid-atlantic this week where i speak to canal alode about being black and pro brexit in the uk tatty bye Chief Scout at the time, and uh, apparently he came down. He must have heard about me playing down at Hayes. He tells the story that he came down, watched me play. The ball went into the box. Uh, I went up for a header, and uh, as it happened, two big defenders, the goalkeeper, myself, and the ball ended up in the net. And he thought to himself, "Well, I'll have a bit of this." And the board apparently said, "Well, we're not quite sure." Storyteller has it that uh, Ronnie Allen turned around and said, well, I'll buy him for my own money. When he makes it, you give him money back. It was on the strength of uh, his belief in my ability that they decided to sign me. Statham. Regis took it down beautifully. 2-1. Well, all the talk about Regis isn't just talk. He was powerful, great touch, didn't score enough scruffy goals. I used to say, when are you going to score a scruffy goal? Every one of your goals can win goal of the month or whatever, like, you know. Head up. Here's Robertson. 
Regis taking it well on the chest and a lovely piece of control by Regis. Oh, and what a great shot! Oh, one of the goals of the season! Cyril Regis! What a way to end a barren spell! Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.